How's that? Is that better? I'm sucking on a Luden's throat bondage. If you can't tell, it's going to sound a little snuffly. I don't know how else to say it. Is that a good word? It's probably like a Dr. Seuss type word. Snuffly. <coughs> yeah, we are uh, thin this morning. Uh, we need to hold one and up one another up in prayer. As Tim mentioned earlier, there's a kind of a wide variety of the kind of colds going around. Uh, <coughs> I uh, I almost had to call an audible Friday. I was really not feeling all that great, but yesterday I actually started feeling fine. And other than just like sore throat and a little con- head congestion, good to go. <coughs> it's a relief to have the you know old-fashioned varieties of uh, sickness. <laughs> it's meant to be sarcastic, so you can laugh if you want to. <laughs> Here we go. Starting to warm up a little bit. We've been studying through the First Corinthians, and uh, we've made it. We have uh, three chapters to go in First Corinthians. We're in chapter fourteen this morning. Uh, <clears throat> we've made it that far. We've been talking about all these wide, different variety of topics that the Apostle Paul talked about and wrote to the Corinthians church. We'll get into some of those in just a second, but uh, really to kind of set the stage. Uh, to set the stage for today, I want to use this phrase, uh, in the first century, and uh, very similar to today, there are many, and there were many competing voices in the culture and in the church. There was a lot of competing voices in the church. Now, that's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek if you know anything about First Corinthians chapter 14, uh, but obviously not much has changed. And Paul writes one of his epistles, this that we're in, the first book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and he established that church, we see that in a historical context in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, if you, if you want to know where kind of the storyline of, of the church in Corinth begins, start in Acts chapter uh, 18, uh, then go ahead and start reading through 1 Corinthians if you so choose. But that kind of sets the backdrop kind of gives you a feel for what Paul was up to, not just Paul, but the other apostles, the other fellows and and, uh, men and women that uh, traveled around, that brought uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the known world at that time in the first century. Uh, He established it in Acts chapter 18, and he writes this corrective letter. So just a small review if you haven't been here. He writes this corrective letter to deal with a sea of chaos in the church, and that's exactly the way that it was. And to some degree, I think in, in uh, our day, there is, in a sense, and there has been, and, and some of the things that we've experienced, especially the last couple of years, have kind of fleshed out this sea of chaos that's in the church. Now, Paul hits specific topics. He hits topics of division, topics of the topic of immorality, uh, litigation, brothers and sisters in the Lord taking one another to civil court rather than dealing with their issues in-house and specifically in the church with godly wisdom in play. Uh, Rather, they were going to the civil authorities. He dealt with issues of marriage and divorce. He dealt with issues of idol worship and food issues, food that was sacrificed to idols. He dealt with the selfishness 
and wrote about the selfishness at the, what they called the love feast at the Lord's table. So like every time they got together, there was a meal, not just once a month or once a quarter or, or whatever. But every time they got together, they shared a meal. Granted, they were probably in smaller house groups. And so that was very normal. You're just like inviting a group of people over and, uh, and let's eat together. The problem was is there was a, an abundance, a plethora of selfishness. People were, you know grabbing all the food and making sure they had plenty or they were getting drunk or whatever they were doing. There was all this selfishness that went, went on and he writes a corrective piece about that. And then he writes about the chaos and the exercise of spiritual gifts. And as we've been studying through 1 Corinthians and have recently looked at the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 and then how love is then applied to the spiritual gifts in chapter 13, Two of the gifts that I mentioned there several weeks ago uh, stand out for some extra clarification. Interestingly enough, uh, the two gifts that get the most clarification here in chapter 14 are also the two gifts that have continued to be at the center of a lot of controversy in modern Christianity. I find that intriguing. That the two, the two of the supernatural endowments that God gives to His people that get the most clarification have caused, in a lot of ways, a lot of division and chaos and confusion. Uh, <clears throat> I see that, uh, you know, in that, my personal view is, is the enemy is really at work there uh, using what God's created for his purposes uh, to create chaos and, and division in the church. The gifts of prophecy and tongues have been really a lightning rod, and really they don't need to be. Uh, for most people... So a little bit of uh, uh, a little maybe a little bit of my own opinions before we get going. Um, for most people, the pendulum on these two gifts are stuck on either end, not in the middle, not balanced. I, I believe that First Corinthians fourteen is a balanced approach. Paul brings balance uh, to what was going on in Corinth, uh, but for a lot of people, and you even see it in the Corinthian church, this pendulum was stuck on one side or the other, and there's kind of two general mentalities about the gifts of prophecy in tongues. Um, one is kind of open the floodgates and the other one's close the flood floodgates. You know, anything goes or nothing goes. Uh, for many, tongues and prophecy are either undertaught, under-exercised, and underappreciated in the church. And they, uh, they kind of are reflected in a sense that people will have this type of an attitude that, that these signs, above all else, are the signs of a true believer. That's a, a prevalent attitude and belief in the in Christianity. On the other side of the spectrum, uh, there's those that believe that it's kind of overtaught, overexercised, overappreciated, or emphasized in the church, and it's reflected in this attitude. Uh, we can't allow any expression of the gifts for the sake of order. So that's kind of the two sides of each side of the pendulum. And for a lot of Christianity, that pendulum is kind of stuck one side or the other. Uh, and I believe that, and I think that we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to deal with both of these extremes. And the fact that Paul had to bring so much clarification in different areas of the Christian life is a clear indication that, the, that <coughs> Corinth was kind of the wild, wild west of church life in the first century. A few things as we get going here in, in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, a good principle in studying the Bible, and one that we talk about 
with a certain amount of regularity is to look at the first thought and the last thought of a passage. Look at the first thought and the last thought of a passage or a chapter. So the two principles that bracket this whole chapter is in verse 1. So I'm going to read this kind of, uh, uh, I'll read the first thought in verse 1 and the last thought in verse 40, uh, kind of as if they're written in a sentence, where it says this, verse 1 says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. So that's the very first thought of the chapter, and the very last thought of the chapter was desire spiritual gifts, but hey, let's have order, let's have some Let's have some uh, flow. Let's not have chaos. Uh, let's have things be done decently and with, uh, and with order. Pursuing love is the whole theme of chapter 13. So Paul kind of carries that into chapter 14. It's the greatest motivator for the Christians can have, is, and nothing really matters according to chapter 13. Nothing really matters if we're not motivated by love. The goal that Paul clearly brings out in chapter 14 is this, is strengthening of the church. That's his goal. He's clarifying about two specific gifts for sure, but his goal clearly stated is strengthening the church. Combine ten times the words such as edify, edifies, edification, encouragement, and comfort are used in the passage. Along with this musical illustration of combined notes being understandable. So he brings this illustration and we, uh, we had a little illustration of what that sounds like, the backside of it, the reverse of notes being combined and being understandable and appreciated <laughs> a couple weeks ago. But Paul is strenuously imploring the, <clears throat> the Corinthian church to put away selfishness and to embrace attitudes and actions that build one another up in the faith. This too, of course, is to include the supernatural gifts that he gives his people. Another thing is to reaffirm two principles. Uh, these principles show up in verses 36 through 38. I'll give you kind of the summary. The summary is, the first principle is, we're not the originator of the word of God. He uses two rhetorical questions in verse 36 through 38. and says, you know, did this begin with you? Or are you the end of the line? So we're not the originator of the word of God, nor are we the end of the line for the word of God. Do you see that in verse 36? Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it only that you, <clears throat> was it only you that it reached? Paul's using some sarcasm here, my favorite style of writing, to uh, accentuate a point here to the Corinthian church that the issue is bigger than just them. Uh, they need to get their eyes focused squarely back on Christ and what his plan is even for the gifts that he's given them. Now, we're neither the authors or the end users of the Word of God. Uh, we can't make up our own rules, in other words, that's a good way to say it. We can't make up our own rules as we go. Uh, we're under the authority of the written Word of God, uh, even if it's uncomfortable or challenging. Uh, for some, maybe this topic is not a big deal. For others, maybe this is really a challenging, or brings anxiety uh, when... Um, issues such as prophecy or tongues are brought up, uh, <clears throat> even though that anxiety may be true and present for you, uh, I want to encourage you in this, is that regardless of where that is, that you're, you as a Christ follower are still obligated to be in underneath the Word of God, according to what the Word of God says, and allow God to deal with those anxieties. 
if we stop and think for only a second, a lot of those anxieties are <clears throat> likely based on past experiences that are negative, not the Word of God. That's my experience, I should say. A lot of those anxieties, a lot of those things in the Bible that make me really feel uncomfortable are kind of based not so much on what the Bible says, but they're based on how I interpret my experiences and then try to figure out what the Bible says about it rather than letting the Word of God kind of shower over my experiences and redefine and allow God to speak about my experiences in a way that then brings some clarity and some comfort into my life. The second point is, is that we really must be Berean. We need to study the Word. We need to understand what God is saying and what His intentions are. And then we have an obligation then to pass it on to the next generation. And that's what Paul was saying sarcastically when he says, was it only you that it reached? Corinthians, was it only you? Is this as far as the Bible goes? Is this as far as the Word of God goes in all of humanity that it's just going to stop with you? And you have the, you know, somehow the corner on the market of what it says and then how it's applied? No, we're to study it, understand it, believe it in faith, and then also teach it to the next generation. So we're not the end of the line. We're not the end of the line by a far shot. All right, those things kind of locked down. Let's dive in. It's a long chapter. We're in great shape other than my voice. So let's dive into chapter 14. I'll read it and then we'll go back and take a, a look at it. Apostle Paul says this in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish all of you spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I, <clears throat> what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even without, excuse me, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how it will be known? How will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, we heard that a couple weeks ago. Who will prepare for battle? If you remember, I'm going to some pause right there and put my thumb on that verse. If you remember several weeks ago, back in chapter 13, uh, there, so it was yeah two messages ago, we gave a little demonstration because in chapter 13 it talks about, you know, uh, <clears throat> without love, these things just, they don't make sense, right? They're a clanging cymbal and I'm up here just beating on the cymbal and I had Bill come up and just play random notes on the trumpet. Uh, which was for him, as good a trumpet player as he is, is probably pretty hard. Uh, and I should have had him play this. In other words, who's going to prepare for battle? If the notes don't make sense, if it's not the, what is the sound that prepare for battle? Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Charge, right? So we can have a little bit of fun with this chapter. It's not all drudgery, right? If you don't understand the notes and what they mean, if they're unintelligible, right? If they're unintelligible, then who's going to prepare for battle? Who's going to rise up and do what God says 
to do. Verse 9. So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words <clears throat> easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? There's your explanation. For you, <clears throat> for you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, shall I be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks a tongue Pray that he may interpret, for I pray in a tongue, my spirit, <clears throat> for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will it, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well, but, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll reread that sentence. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than, all of, than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding than a, that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues, uh, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for the unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speaks with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and he is con <coughs> convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brother? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let, it <clears throat> let there be two or the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first be kept silent. For if you can all prophesy one by one, <clears throat> that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women be kept silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. <clears throat> or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? 
If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid the spe- to speak with tongues. Let all things be done and decently, be done decently and in order. It's a real mouthful to read all in one setting. Especially if your throat hurts. As I mentioned earlier, kind of the main point that I want to ride with is that through all of these, uh, through all of this corrective language that the Apostle Paul has, he really has one, maybe two, I would say actually there's two uh, points, and I'll mention the first one most important one first, and that's in verse 25, where he says, and talking about the uninformed or the unbeliever, that they're falling down to their face. He has worshiped God and report that God is truly among you. Like that's God reaching out to the people that, that aren't in a relationship with him, that don't know about God, that don't believe in God, that happen to show up and they see the church doing what the church should be doing with decency of order, the Bible says, not chaos, not in anything goes, but that there's some structure, there's some, there's some uh, flow to a service that makes sense. Not just people yelling out and speaking, you know, in different languages and, and over the top of one another, and, and there's just all this chaos. There, Paul says those type of people sit back and say, Are these guys crazy? What's going on here? There's no order to it. There's no pattern to it. There's nothing that's, that, that builds one on another. The second point that the Apostle Paul said, and what I mentioned earlier, is the spiritual gifts are for the building up of the church. All of them. All of them. And uh, as I mentioned also earlier, that uh, few, the only two that really seem to be really controversial are these two. Like you don't see the gifts of helps that's mentioned in chapter 12 or the gifts of administration you don't see those, those are not controversial. Like if somebody has the supernatural gift of help, they're just always there. They're saying, hey, what can I help you with? And they're, you know, and they're, they're right there. They're fine playing number two. They're fine being the co-pilot to somebody's ministry, and they're just filling in the blanks and grabbing what's next and, and how can I help you and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's not controversial, not in the least. We look at that and we say, man, they're just right where they should be. They're right, that's exactly how God's created them. They're right in their sweet spot, right? There's not much to be controversial. Uh, These have a tendency to be controversial for a lot of reasons. Everything in this chapter points to the church being built up and edified. And the quickest way to eliminate edification is to inject confusion. If you want to eliminate people being encouraged, if you want to eliminate people understanding and growing in the knowledge and the Word of God, growing in the relationship with Jesus, all you have to do is inject confusion. Because confusion puts everybody pointing in an opposite direction from everybody else. Everybody starts running their own trail. Everybody starts with their own thoughts. Or, uh, perhaps maybe even worse than that, is you have this group going this way, saying, you guys, you don't have it right. That group over there saying, well, you guys, you guys don't have it right. And, and everybody, and it just starts all of this, the confusion starts all of this division 
and chaos in the church. And that was exactly what was going on in Corinth in a lot of ways. Not just with prophecy and tongues. They had a lot of struggles. If you think back, if you think back about all the topics that I just talked about, kind of in a summary statement, all the topics that the Apostle Paul had to say, they had chaos in the fellowship. They were following their favorite leader, who, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. It was chaotic. Nobody knew and could trust one another because everybody was choosing their favorite leader. Paul says, put that chaos down, we're all following Christ. He talks about it in the context of, of, of immorality. You had a guy, and these are the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, you had a guy that was sleeping with his stepmom, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. He says, no, that type of activity, that's chaos. We're going to push that chaos down. We're going to eliminate it. He needs to leave because he hasn't repented. We need to bring order. All of these just one by one by one, or by one at a time, the Apostle Paul just clicks off the list. These chaotic things that were going on. Now he gets to the chaos inside the church as the way that they were exercising their gifts. But they were clearly showing up at a gathering and they were <clears throat> without any type of order, prophesying without any accountability or speaking in tongues without people understanding what was said. The real issue that cropped up was a lack of edifying and strengthening of the church. That was what was being eroded away. And in addressing this problem, Paul kind of takes a what's best for the church approach. What's best for the church? What's best for everybody? We had a situation a couple weeks ago. It was actually pretty funny. But Morgan, who's come home recently from India, was playing this video, and she's working with a lady on learning the language. And she shared about this um, last week? Last week. But, it, but you guys didn't see the video. But the video, was it was really funny. And actually, Tammy's response to the video was the funniest part because... The lady would say, she kept telling Morgan, she had, Morgan had a, so she's videotaping it. On the table, she's got this book, all these rows of pictures, and the lady is, is um, telling Morgan, point to, you know, the broken ankle. So there's a picture of somebody with a broken ankle. And point to, and it's point to, and point to. And Tammy says, we watched this video, and Tammy's like, land sakes, all of those words sound the same. And Morgan's trying to explain, you know, the, the language and some of the nuances of that particular language. Don't even ask me what language it is. I have no idea. Urdu. So it's Urdu. There we go. Don't ask me to spell it now. Anyway, and so, um, so there's kind of builds this kind of confusing back and forth between Tammy and Morgan and she's like, no, no, no. Like, she keeps saying the same thing, but you keep giving different answers. And Morgan finally stops her. She says, Mom, she's saying in Urdu, point to a broken ankle. Point to a cut on the arm. Point to. So the point to was the part that Tammy kept hearing, and it sounded exactly, the, it was, it was exactly the same. It was just a little bit on the end of the point to that sounded different, but to our ears, it sounded really um, chaotic. 
I don't know why that came to my mind. I was just thinking about it, speaking of speaking in tongues. Um, <laughs> Paul takes this approach, what's best for the body? What's best for the body? Well, obviously what was going on there was not best for the church. Uh, what's best? Being able to understand what's being said. He says in verse 18, which is really the pivotal statement in this chapter, he says, I thank my God I speak with tongues. So he's not denying the gift of tongues and saying that it's irrelevant. He says he thanks God that he speaks with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's saying that the way that we're edified as a body is if we understand. We need to understand. He would rather speak with some understanding. He would rather speak and have people understand what he's saying. But he's not denying the gift. He's just saying there's a right and appropriate time for it. Paul calls us to be mature in our understanding. Then he, he paraphrases uh, there in chapter 14 and verse 21. He paraphrases a piece out of Isaiah 28, uh, about verse 9, where Isaiah was prophesying about the coming persecution and domination of the Assyrians, uh, that they brought with them other tongues. That's where he says, look at verse 21. He says, with men of other tongues and other lips. He's talking, he's prophesying about the eventual coming of the Assyrians that would come and dominate and take over and essentially haul Israel out of the land. They brought with them other tongues, yet God's people still didn't understand what was going on. And I will speak to this people, yet for all that, they will not hear me. They will not deal with really the heart of in that, uh, in that portion that Isaiah and the other prophets had dealt with. The thing that Israel would not put down, they would never completely deal with their idolatry. They always had a little piece. They always had a little something in the back pocket. They always had a little something stashed away. They always had these high places that they would go to. And just, just, I just, it's kind of like they, just, like they were addicts, like they were addicted to idolatry. Just have to go up to that high place and, you know, and do this. Or we have to worship to this little idol, tuck it away, hide it under the tent, whatever the case is. They wouldn't deal with their idolatry and Paul uses, and he kind of paraphrases this because it's not identical. If you look at Isaiah chapter 28, the wording is not identical. But he paraphrases it. And he says here, he says, this is, a, this is a sign. Tongues, therefore, is a sign not to those who believe, but to the unbeliever. Uh, I say this, is that when somebody sh shows up and is able to speak in multiple languages... The shock on somebody's face when they hear their own language being spoke to by somebody they never expected it is really quite interesting. They, they, just, they just stop. I remember years ago, uh, friends of ours adopted some kids from Colombia, and uh, they only spoke Spanish. It was, it was quite the ordeal even getting them up here. But uh, that being said, <coughs> the first opportunity that they got to hear somebody uh, with lighter skin speaking Spanish, those kids were amazed. They all just kind of got, I remember this clear as a bell. Uh, they just got in a little circle and sat down because it was their first real opportunity to communicate with their new adoptive parents through a translator. And they were just spellbound looking at this uh, friend of ours that spoke real fluent Spanish. 
Uh, it was a kind of a precious sign. I don't know why that came to my mind either. But For the church to be strengthened, we have to understand and embrace what's being communicated. That's what Paul's saying here. Often the prevailing solution is to shy away from the gifts out of uh, fear or past experience. But Paul, uh, Paul has several statements about that. Uh, Paul has a few statements where he says in verse 5, I wish all of you spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. So he's not doing away with spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues or prophecy. I thank my God in verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than all of you. I mentioned that earlier. And, and at the very end, he says, do not forbid to speak with tongues. But a couple of statements of correction about the confusion in Corinth to kind of balance those. He says, let all things be done for edification. Verse 26, God is not the author of confusion but of peace. Oftentimes that, that verse is drawn out of context to talk about other things that really don't involve spiritual gifts. It's, it's, it's uh, applied in a lot of different ways. I suppose some of those are probably okay. But the reality is, is that, that God inspired the Apostle Paul to, to write this down, to pen this down, to specifically talk about the confusion and chaos that would come in the misappropriation and the misuse of the spiritual gifts. God's not the author of confusion, but a God of peace, verse 33. And then, of course, the passage that we read earlier, let all things be done decently and in order. Uh, the concern was ultimately in how the gifts were being implemented. The concern was ultimately in how the gifts were being implemented. And there's kind of a pattern that has... I've been able to pick out of chapter 14. The pattern looks this way, and it's kind of the telltale sign of the Corinthian church, the wild, wild west uh, mantra that they had, or, or reputation maybe is a better way to put it. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of control in that church in general. There was a lot of chaos. And so the pattern starts with the uncontrollable. The Corinthians were chaotic in their gatherings. Everything was happening. It was bizarre. It was, we, would th- we would step in and say, wow, this is really, this is not a place that I would want to be. People showing up drunk, people running up and grabbing the food, you know, people suing one another, not, you know, thinking twice about it, you know, people uh, in, in sexual relations that are <laughs> related, um, you know, all that was going on, all that Paul's talked about so far through 13, 14 chapters, we can see that this is a church that's really out of control in a lot of ways. So the Corinthians were chaotic in their gatherings. Because of that uncontrolled nature, when it came to these particular gifts, and the reason why Paul inserts here so much of what he does, is because a lot of what was being said was then unintelligible. They didn't know what was being said. They, they, didn't, know how to, they didn't know how to discern what was being said. Uh, <clears throat> and so if somebody's just speaking in a different language, um, you know, how, how do you know? How do you know what is trying to be communicated? And because it was unintelligible, then it was unedifying. Few were growing because of a lack of understanding. There has to be understanding when things are communicated in a public sense. And that's not to do away with the gifts. It's just to simply say <clears throat> that there needs to be understanding. There's not, if it's not intelligible, it's unedifying. If it's not edifying, then it's definitely unloving 
ultimately. That's why he starts the chapter off with pursue love. Because what was happening was unloving. There was divisions, there was factions, there was widespread in Corinth. People were all over the place and nobody was pursuing the first two words in chapter 14. Nobody was pursuing love. Nobody was pursuing the best for somebody else. They were pursuing what was best for themselves. And he says clearly, he says tongues are a, are a spiritual gift that edifies that person. Now if there's an interpreter, then everybody could be edified. Sure enough. But there's not an interpreter. Then the, this, the gift of tongues edifies the person that's speaking in a foreign language. Everybody else stands around with question marks. And the Lord's solution, by the way, little research into the book of 1 Corinthians. I should have mentioned this in my first sermon on 1 Corinthians. Uh, <clears throat> there's one word that's used over 90 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's the word Lord. That's the word Lord. And ultimately, if you look at all of these problems and the chaos that the Corinthians church had, ultimately what it boiled down to is they had a lordship problem. They had a lordship problem. They, they liked Jesus as Savior, and this is where a lot of believers are, I believe, today, and a lot of people in our country. You, you look at the statistics, and it's, it's almost laughable if you look at our national t- statistics of who would claim to be a Christian and then look at all the statistics that would support whether there's evidence for or against that, and you're like, yeah, really? <laughs> I don't, I'm not great at math, but I'm good enough to do them. That equation doesn't match up. And the reality is, is that, <clears throat> that Corinth had, and I think in a lot of America today and other parts of the world, we have more of a lordship problem. We like Jesus as Savior. We like that piece. That's comforting. That's encouraging. It gives us hope for what's happening in the future. It gives us uh, something to look forward to. It gives us a sense of, of uh, <clears throat> frankly, that we're not going to fry in hell. You know, we like Jesus as Savior, but we don't like, and I don't think the Corinthian church really liked, because they struggle with it, and I think that we struggle with it as, as well. They don't like Jesus as Lord so much. So Paul, I think, intentionally, intentionally in the book of 1 Corinthians, inserts this word. He talks about the Lord over 90 times throughout this book. Really what was happening, if you want to think about it from a chaotic standpoint, it was a lot like the last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21-25, where they said that the <clears throat> people of Israel, they didn't have a king, and everybody was doing just what was right in their own eyes. That's a, uh, that's a pretty good indicator of what was happening here. I think it's a pretty good indicator of what's happening today. So, What are we to understand from chapter 14? As we close, if the worship team wants to get ready to come back up, and I realize this is a short message, probably about all my throat has to give. Um, Understand this, that God starts with love. God starts with love. Paul says pursue love, first two words of the chapter. The whole chapter before that is about love. The end of chapter 14, 12, the last verse in, in chapter 12, 
Paul says, let me show you a more excellent way. He's talking about love. So God starts with love. Pursue love. If it's not loving, if it's not loving, <clears throat> make sure you're taking a biblical definition of what's loving, not a cultural definition. A cultural definition of love uh, will run you really down a rabbit trail in a hurry. So start with a biblical definition of love. God starts with love. That's what we're to understand. We're to understand that uh, who tongues and prophecy benefit and how. That's really what Paul was bringing some clarity. He said, here's, here's, who, it, here's who it benefits, here's who it, who it edifies, and here's how it edifies them. And so he lays out a game plan. He lays out, he brackets up the whole chapter uh, with this idea of love and this idea of order, and then here's how it's exercised in an edifying and beneficial way to the whole body. We need to understand that understanding is the key to edification. That if there's not any understanding, if there's not understanding, then we will struggle uh, to, to be edified and to edify other people. We need to understand that accountability is essential to strengthening the church and correcting chaos. That's where he says there in the latter portions, he says, hey, if there's, you're going to speak in tongues in church, then there needs to be somebody there to interpret if it's a public setting. If there's not somebody there to interpret, keep it to yourself. If you're going to prophesy, then the prophets need to go in order. They need to lay it out, right? There needs to be those that there's accountability built into it. Uh, by the way, if you prophesy and if it's not true, that's a whole other sermon, right? There needs to be accountability. It needs to be essential to strengthening the church and correcting chaos. We need to understand that we must have discernment towards the unbelievers, and the uninformed, as Paul calls them. We must have discernment towards the unbelievers and the uninformed. Those that don't know Christ or don't know much about Christ, those that don't know the Word or don't know much about the Word, we need to be sensitive that we don't just run them off the rails in an effort to make sure that we're getting our you know, moment in the spotlight with our spiritual gift. Paul says that's being completely... Uh, unedifying. That's being completely selfish. We need to understand that the gifts are not to be despised or forbidden. We need to understand that there's a specific order to what God is doing and that church order is reflected in the home. The last point that he makes before he kind of wraps it up is, uh, <clears throat> is one that in our society is not very well uh, it's pretty despised statement. But I'm going to put it this way. Because I think it puts the pressure not on the ladies, but on the men. And I have no problem doing that. Uh, and this is really the, the summary of that portion. Men, you need to be the pastors of your home. You need to be the pastors of your home, right? And, and I realize that we, we come from a mixed crowd. We come from, you know, there's, uh, there, there's guys here with, uh, without their wives, or there's wives here without their husbands, or maybe you don't have one or the other, or whatever. But the reality is that... that <coughs> As the, I would say the norm, let's put it that way. Let's talk about the norm, not the exception. Too many times we fly to the exception rather than talking about the norm. And the norm is this, that Paul says clearly in these, <clears throat> this is my summary anyway, that husbands, you're to be the pastors of your homes. If there's things that are talked about, if there's not things that are misunderstood or not understood, husbands, you need to be on deck. That means you need to be out in front. 
right? You need to be out, you need to be leading your home in such a way that you can then share with your wives, you can share with your kids, uh, you can bring some of those corrective and those leadership measures in the home. That's why he inserts that. There's a lot of opinions about that. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into it. My throat's pretty much shot. So we're going we're to close here with worship. I would encourage you with this as we close and as we sing our last worship song. If you have any questions, feel free. Feel free to come and talk to any one of us. Um, I know that this is a hot-button topic in the church. Uh, <clears throat> my personal opinion is for our church, I don't think it's a big issue. But I think in the church at large, sometimes it's been a big issue. I've seen people walk away from Christianity for, uh, and walk, on, walk away from the church on both sides of the extremes. I've seen people that have been deeply hurt and ran over by people that were, you know, trying to force something down their throats with spiritual gifts that wasn't, that God hadn't inserted into them. I've seen the other side of it. I've seen uh, <clears throat> people with, with tremendous spiritual gifts uh, walk away from the church as well because, they're, because the, the church and the fellowship that they were part of clamped down so tight. There was so much control and there was so much, you know, uh, that type of thing. There was an abuse on one side. There can be abuses on both sides. We need to shoot for the middle. I believe that God calls us to shoot to the middle. I don't think this is a particular issue in our fellowship, by the way. But I think we need to be sensitive to people around us where it has been an issue. We need to encourage them. We need to encourage one another. We don't have to fear the gifts. It says earlier in, uh, in 1 Corinthians that, that nobody can say Jesus is Lord if they're speaking from you know, an evil perspective, right? So we don't have to fear the gifts, but we don't have to lock them down so tight that they can't be exercised in the church. God created spiritual gifts for a time and a season. Here, now, for a time and a season, God has given us supernatural gifts, a wide variety of them, a wide variety of them, that the churches would be built up and encouraged that the churches would flourish, not crumble, not shrink, not fade away out of existence. So we can't fear something that we may not have experience with. But we have to be discerning. We have to be edifying. And we must be loving. Let's stand and worship together.